You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Right now to kick off our, uh, our first Sunday of Advent, our theme for this month, uh, is uh, for this series, is the Great Gift Exchange. And would you guys please join me in welcoming our pastor of discipleship and spiritual formation, Angela Otero. Thank you, Reese. Am I on? I am. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning, and it's an honor and a privilege to get to um, speak on this first day of Advent. So I have two, um, what I like to think of as pretty humble goals for this morning, and I'll just go ahead and tell them to you right up front. Um, The first one is, it's my hope and my prayer that we all walk away from this talk with just a little bit more knowledge and context about the prophet Isaiah, because we're going to be reading a lot of Isaiah this month. Um, And the other one is to encourage you to engage with God this Advent in a deeper way. No matter where you are on your journey with God... There's always more, and he has more for you this Advent season. I believe it. I've been praying for it. Your pastors have all been praying for it, and so this is a call, an all-call to our church. So Advent, we've used this word several times, but many of us weren't raised in the church, and many of us, if we were raised in the church, weren't necessarily raised in a liturgical church. Roger said this before, but I'll say it again. Advent comes, it's the Latin word, um, and it means coming or arrival. And we observe it or celebrate it as the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. And at its core, I believe Advent is about intention. Intention. Um, Advent is a communal practice. We do it as a church community. It's a season that prepares our hearts and minds for Jesus, which is more important than ever in this really busy world with all the hustle and bustle, with all the things that we have going on leading up to Christmas. I don't know about you, but as I've like become an adult and had to do this thing, adulting thing, um, like Christmas comes and goes, and I was like, oh wait, this was a Jesus holiday that I was supposed to be like leaning into more of what God has for me. And all I did was wrap presents and find things and go to things. And, and so I want to encourage us, young or old, that this isn't just about all the things that we do during Advent. It's about who it is that we are posturing ourselves toward this Advent. So this year, Reese already mentioned, um, that our Advent, our church-wide Advent theme is the Great Gift Exchange. And we're gonna be approaching Christmas Day maybe slightly differently than, than you've ever done it before. Maybe you've done this before, but through the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, the prophecies from the book of Isaiah. And each week, both in our sermons 
on Sundays, but also in our Advent devotional guide, which um, teaser that's coming up in a minute. We'll talk about that. We're gonna meditate on different passages from the book of Isaiah. It'll be like a treasure hunt, if you will, to find out about the great gift exchange that God is promising to us. So let me pray as we begin. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people to worship you today. And we thank you that we get to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And we thank you that we get a whole month to focus our hearts and our minds on who you are and why you came, Jesus. I ask that you would provoke our souls, provoke our souls to move toward you this Advent, that we may not allow ourselves to be consumed by consumerism or distracted by our obligations, but instead I ask you to capture our imaginations with your hope and your peace and your joy and your love. Give us the grace to make you the focus this season, not just on Sundays, but every single day of Advent leading up to your arrival on Christmas Day, Jesus. I pray this for our church. Amen. Amen. So let's read from the book of Isaiah, if you will. We're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And today I'm using the English Standard Version, if you'd like to know that. And it says this, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I love that turn of phrase, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So if I could sum up that passage for you with one word, it would be hope. God is making a promise to all creation about the good things that he wants to do for us. And we as humans need to hope. We have an inherent need in us as human beings to hope in something. And I think it's the hope for someone who's greater, someone who's greater than we are to fix what we've broken and to intervene in the battles that we face. And in this passage, God is saying, I am the one who is greater. And I want to exchange your real life battles for real life hope. So today's talk is titled Exchanging Battles for Hope. 
And let's look at verse 1 again closely and get a little more context here for what's going on. So it says, this is the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah here is claiming to speak, to be speaking on behalf of Yahweh, God. Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet who was believed to live about 700 years before Jesus' birth. And he was born in Jerusalem, and he found his calling as a prophet through his vision that he had in the year that King Isaiah died in Israel's history. <clears throat> and at this time in Israel's history, the nation was broken. It's broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah, which contained Jerusalem. So that's why there's that reference about Judah and Jerusalem in there. And we now, all these years later, believe Isaiah's prophecies to be true because he foretold about the empire of Babylon, that it was coming, that it was going to destroy um, the Hebrew people, and he foretold about the Messiah. Babylon happened at like that. That happened about a hundred years after his prophecy, and then Jesus came about seven hundred years after his prophecies about the Messiah. And so we are able to believe that Isaiah is true, even now, all these years later, when we read this stuff, and it's kind of foreign to us as we pick it up, because his prophecies have been shown to come true. But unfortunately. Oftentimes when we pick up the book of Isaiah, maybe it's, maybe it's just me, maybe it's not you. Um, but I think the books of the prophets are a little bit intimidating. Anybody feel the same way? Yes. Anybody? Okay, thank you. Does anybody like kind of dread picking, like when you're picking a verse to read from the Bible, it's like, oh, not choose a prophet. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? Okay, I got a few, few honest friends out there who have my back. It's probably, at least for me, because they're really ancient writings by men we didn't know in a historical context that we aren't very familiar with, using strange metaphorical actions and imagery. The prophets were weird. They said weird things. They did weird things. <clears throat> so if you will humor me, I want to reintroduce us to the prophets in our Bible as a group of real life men as a group of real-life men speaking to real-life people, fighting real-life battles. And they do this through a specific kind of Hebrew literature. The prophets, it's a kind of literature that we kind of have to understand in and of itself to understand who they were and what they were saying. So there's this really amazing resource. It's called The Bible Project. And they do an amazing job of creating animated videos. Now, it's not necessarily children's videos, although it's very um, accessible to children. Um, but they explain really complex ideas from the Bible in really easy-to-understand language, and then they animate it so you, those people who understand things visually can kind of see it unfold as they explain. Anyway, I'm hoping to take some time now. It's going to be a five-minute video that I want to show and I'm hoping that because we take this time, one, it'll introduce you to the Bible Project and that you'll go back and you'll watch some of the other things that they have because they are really great. But the other thing that I want to do in this is just give us some exposure to 
who the prophets were. That'll enrich our time in Isaiah this Advent, I believe. So let's watch this one about the prophets. Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk. What do these names have in common? Well, they're three of the 15 prophets that have their own books in the Bible. And if you've tried to read these books, odds are you got lost in their dense poetry and strange imagery. But these books are super important for understanding the overall biblical story. So let's talk about how to read the prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future. That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers. How should I think about them? Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf. Like a representative. Right. And the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. Right, the partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations. And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant. But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. And so this is where the prophets came in, to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor. Ah, so like covenant lawyers. Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways. But Israel and its leaders didn't change. Things went from bad to worse. And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasized the covenant. They announced the consequences for breaking it, which they called the day of the Lord. Oh yeah, the apocalypse, visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of. The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery? Yeah, like Jeremiah. He described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself. The land dissolves into chaos and disorder, no light, no animals or people. Or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos, stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark. For the prophets, when God acts in human history to bring justice, it's a day of the Lord. So the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world. Well, hold on, they're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time. Got it. So no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon. But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom. The day of the Lord pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem, like a new garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there's a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation. Beautiful. So those are the three themes in the prophets. These prophets must have been very powerful, persuasive speakers. Well, some were, but others lived on the margins. 
They would often perform strange symbolic stunts in public to communicate their message. Like when Ezekiel lay in the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem being attacked by Babylon. Or when Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a symbol of the humiliation of exile. So do people pay attention to them? Not really. The stories in these books show how the prophets were a minority group mostly shunned by Israel's leaders. And their writings were a kind of resistance literature. Most people ignored them, that is, until their warnings came true in the Babylonian exile. And after that, people began to take their words seriously. Yes, the works of these earlier prophets were inherited by later unnamed prophets who studied these texts intensely. They're the ones who arranged the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, including the books of the prophets. Okay, and there's 15 books of the prophets. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then there's a collection of 12 smaller prophetic works unified on a single scroll. And in each of these books, you'll read stories about the prophets and their poems and visions, all arranged to show the cosmic meaning of Israel's history. How God would turn their tragic story of failure and exile into a story of hope and restoration for all nations. And it's that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope that the prophets cared about so much. And it's a message that we still need to hear today. So did you catch the part where they said the prophets were sent to the people of Israel to teach how God would turn their tragic story of war and exile and failure into a story of hope and restoration, not just for them, but for all nations. That's important. I think that's key when we look at the prophets to remember that. We can, we can read all of the prophets through that lens and understand the nature of God and his big, big heart. So let's look again at the verse, verses that I read a few minutes ago. This portion is a promise, a promise of hope about the good that God will do, the good that the prophets in that video were just, they were referencing. <clears throat> This is the great exchange, and it's a great reversal, if you will, of taking wrong and making it right. Okay, so verse two, chapter two, verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So little context here from the ancient Near East, the high places were where all peoples from all religions would go and worship their gods. They believed that the gods dwelled in high places and to get closer to God, they would build their temples up on mountains and high hills. And in these temples, the other nations with their other gods would perform pretty grotesque rituals up there in the high places. So when Isaiah says, the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain, he's saying two things at once, maybe more than that, but we'll focus on two. Um, here's the hope. One day it will be proven that our God is the highest of all the gods, 
Our God's mountain is higher than your God's mountain. <laughs> All your God's mountains. But he is, he's saying this, and he's saying this like literally, it will be established as the highest, he is the highest God. But more than that, what he's saying is, our God's ways are higher than your God's ways. In their context, they had um, like gods like Moloch. Moloch was the God who required infant sacrifices in his temple. And there was gods like Baal. He was the God that required um, ritualistic uh, prostitution in his temple in order to have fertility and good harvest. You have to send your, send your boys to the altar to be sacrificed and your daughters to be sacrificed in other ways. But then there was the empires. There's the gods, the mean, awful gods. And then there's the empires, like Assyria and then Babylon, that are warring against the peoples around them and crushing them. And not only do they come in and, and crush them, crush their spirits and their hopes, but they drag all the people off to slavery. This is the context that the Hebrew people are living in. But in our context, that seems a little bit foreign to us. So maybe it's different for us. Maybe it's our careers. Maybe it's our family of origin. Maybe it's a different kind of unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's a fear of the pandemic and its aftermath. Maybe it's an unjust government or an inequitable system that you find yourself in. Maybe it's an addiction or a mental illness or a cycle of sin that you just can't crawl out of. In our, God, in our context, the gods and the empire is different, but they are oppressive nonetheless. And they're real to us nonetheless. And Isaiah is saying, not just for the people, the Hebrew people, but for all people, for all times, he's saying, our God is higher than all that. And he wants to exchange our battles with the oppressive forces in our lives for hope in him, who is higher than all the gods and all the empires that control us. So he goes on, verse three. And therefore, all the nations shall flow to it. That's the mountain, the highest mountain. But it's also symbolic there, not just for the mountain, but for his rule, God's rule, and reign, and his way, the highest way. And many people shall come, he says, and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, a.k.a. the Hebrew people, that he may teach us his ways, and then that we may walk in his paths. This passage is offering us hope here that all the people and all the kingdoms and all the empires of the world will someday realize that God's ways were the best ways all along. Amen. And they will want to learn to be like our good and kind and loving and fair God. And it goes on. It says, for out of Zion shall go the law 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice these words here, Zion and law and word. These are important words. To us, they're just words, but to them, they they had meaning, significance. We here have hope again in a loving and fair king judge, if you will, who makes and enforces a kind and just system. So when the prophets talk about Zion, it's literally their holy place. It was a place in Jerusalem, a high hill. Um, And it was literally a holy place. And their temple, um, God's throne room, if you will. For them, it was a spiritual reality, but it was also like a literal kingship, a literal reality that God is going to be the earthly king. And when they talk about the word law, and his word, um, they were believing in like a literal government here. Because back then, a good king was supposed to sit in his throne and make good laws. And he would speak the words out, he would speak his word, and then scribes would write it down, and they'd make a copy and make a copy and make a copy, and then they'd send it out to all the empire, and it became law. So in, that's the context and the promise that they're hearing, is that there's this king, he's promised God is gonna be the highest, he's gonna sit on his throne, he's gonna make good laws, and as he speaks them, they will write them and they will go out, and everyone, everywhere, will have to obey. But it's also symbolic, not just for that time, but for them, but through all history, and now for us. For anywhere on earth, where God's good ways are being proclaimed and enacted, his kingdom is coming. And remember how the video explained that the prophets, they were doing many things at once. One of the things they're doing is they're caring about the present biblical time. So they're in history, they're in a historical context, speaking about something that's going to happen in their actual history. And we're not sure if they realized this or not, but they were saying more than just what they were saying. They were speaking about all of time. And Isaiah was prophesying about the powerful and cruel empire of Babylon, but he was also prophesying about a greater story that God is telling to all of humanity. All of humanity who are now exploited and enslaved by sin. And he was prophesying about the one who is greater, who would deliver all of humanity from the empire of sin and death that has captured us all. All this, all at once. He's doing all the things. But Isaiah promises, someday we will all be ruled by this God, this king. And then in verse four, he says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The next piece of hope here is that we have hope in a peace-loving and strong king 
who creates a nation of peace and stability. The hope is that he's going to make things right. He's not just a kind king who makes kind laws. He's also a fair judge who makes sure that the good laws are enforced. So I don't, I don't know about you, and I don't even know where this came from, but I always think of judge as a scary word, like the judge is scary, and that if God's a judge, he's, he's like, can't wait to come tell me that I've done something wrong. I don't know. Maybe it's just my sinful nature, because I don't feel like the people around me put that on me. But just somehow, inherently, I hear the word judge, and I cringe, like um, I'm about to get caught for something. And um, when, we, when I read the word judge in the Bible, I, I think that that means that he's looking to tell me what I did wrong. But when they heard the word judge, it, was, it wasn't that kind of a context. Or they did say, mentioned in the, in the Bible that for Babylon, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord is going to be scary. But for people waiting for the kingdom, it's the best news ever. And so maybe it's about your perspective and like whose side you're on as to how you read this or, or take it. But I always tend to think that the word judge is like just looking for something wrong with me. But like I said, they heard the word judge as someone who's going to come and fix it. Because there's supposed to be laws, and then someone has to make sure that the law, the laws are made for the good of the people in theory, right? And so someone's supposed to come and make sure that these laws actually happen so that people can receive the good. Well, what happens when people are breaking the laws and good isn't happening for people? We need someone to come in and say, hey, you did this wrong, you can't do this to these people anymore. And so what they're hearing when they hear that God is this judge and he's coming to judge, they're hearing, oh yes, thank you, finally, these big scary Assyrians with their yucky gods and these big scary Babylonians with their yucky gods and then the Romans, they come after this, the Roman Empire with their yucky gods, like, oh, God's gonna come and stop this. He's going to say, nope, this is the way, and this is the law, and this is my word. No more of this. And so they hear the word judge, and they hear, yes, finally. He's a fair judge who makes sure that the good laws are enforced and that people play fair and that the weaker nations and peoples are protected by the laws. And there is hope that he will come and put the systems to right. And they were hoping this in a governmental sense because they were literally scared of the empires coming against them. But for us, reading this now, our empires are different and the things that oppress us and enslave us are different. And there's hope that he will come into our personal nations. So that for me, my nation of Angela, whatever that is, or the nation of my family, or the nation of my community, that God will come into the nation of my life in this context. 
and that he will come and that he will set things right and that he will bring a personal peace and a personal stability to us here and now. All these promises he's making to us. And then this part ends with this beautiful call. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This passage is a promise of hope that our God, our Lord, will come. And he promises this to them, but he also promises this for all of us, for all the nations throughout all times. And he'll prove that his ways are the best ways. We don't have to prove it. He's gonna prove it for us. And these ways will be so good, in fact, that all the people from all the nations, they'll realize on their own. We don't have to tell them. We don't have to make, get people straight. The people will realize because they'll see. And they'll want God's ways too. They will be hungry for God's good ways. And when this happens, God will take the injustices and he will set it all right. And this was a literal promise to Israel, but it's also a greater promise to all people of God. And so in the weeks ahead, you'll hear more about how Jesus becomes the key. The key to all these promises. Roger alluded to it earlier today when he talked about the coming of Jesus at Christmas and then the coming of Jesus again in the final age to come. But that's what we get to talk about this Advent because Jesus is the one who makes the great gift exchange possible. He will exchange oppression for freedom. He will exchange injustice for justice. He will exchange our battles for a great hope. And he empowers us then to be those hands and feet who do the same for the people around us right here and right now, looking ahead to the someday when it will all be finally set right. So here's the invitation for today. God is calling to each of us through these verses And he wants to exchange our real-life battles for real-life hope. And there are so many ways that we can say yes to God's invitation. And oftentimes it's personal and invitational. And it's important that we we say yes to the, the invite that God is giving us. But I have one possible opportunity for you that might be something that you would like to interact with this this Advent season as a a way of saying yes to his invitation. So I'm going to ask our ushers to go ahead, or greeters, to go ahead and um, stand up and pass out. We have an Advent devotional. So what's really special about this um, is that it's written by Uh, members of our church, individual um, pastors on staff, people not on staff, men, women. It's this beautiful collaboration. And there's a, um, 
a devotional guide for each day of the week. And really, we actually tried to make it really doable and really invitational. And so it's something that was designed to be five minutes a day, five times a week, and for all ages. So grown-ups, when you're asked to take out tinfoil and fold it into something important, don't skip it. <laughs> and young people, when you're asked to be still and hold out your hands, you can wiggle a little. <laughs> but there's important things in here. As I was reading and as these were coming in, as our contributors were, were sending them into me and I was compiling them, I just was moved to tears. There's beautiful things in these daily um, devotionals. There's gifts for you in here, and if you will take it and you will um, utilize it during Advent, I think that God will meet you in these moments, in these days. If you're not a paper copy kind of person, we have, we have enough copies for every household to get at least one today, and we can make more copies if we need, but there's another really cool thing that we have, and that is that you can subscribe online. And instead of having a paper copy that you need to keep up with, you could instead subscribe online and it'll send you the daily devotional to your email inbox, if you prefer, at 5 a.m. Ding, it'll be there inviting you to start your day in the presence of God. So let me invite you to use this. And I think one of the things that makes it fun is that if many of us are doing it together, we know, like, I read this, but so-and-so, my friend in church, is reading it too today. And isn't that kind of a cool thing that we get to do? Or if we're not, like I, my parents are in our church, I'm not in the same household as them anymore because I'm, I'm growed, growed up. <laughs> but if they're reading it across town on the same day that I'm reading it in my home, like what a special way to do something together and apart at the same time. So here's just an example, a way that you can allow God to meet you in a special way this Advent. And I do, my, like, our prayers are all over this, that it really would be something that is um, just deeply rewarding to you. But I would just close by saying, God wants to meet with you this Advent. He doesn't want it to just be a Christmas that goes by without us taking time to incline our hearts to him. So I'm going to invite us to do a little bit of that right now. And so let me invite everyone to stand up. Um, worship team, if you want to go ahead and come up. And um, ministry team, prayer team, if you'll go ahead and make yourselves available as well. We've got about five more minutes to the service today and I'm going to take every single one of them. So let's take a moment right here and right now to just end with prayer. And let me invite you to stand where you are, close your eyes, make this kind of your personal moment between you and God so beautiful to look out and see the people of God all together and yet having this moment with God, each individual person. So as your eyes are closed, just take a couple deep breaths. And as you breathe in, think about what is your personal battle right now? What is the lowercase God or the 
lowercase empire that has got you under its oppressive thumb. And talk to God about that. And hold it up to God in your heart. This good king who promises to come and to be the judge who sets things right. God wants the best life for you. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. That's his promise. God is saying, no matter how good your life is right now, no matter how bad your life is right now, God wants to make an exchange with you, a great gift exchange. People so often misunderstand the God of the Old Testament. That here's his heart. Here's the good news. He says right there in Isaiah, give me your life. Give me the ways it's broken. Give me the battles and the wars that you're fighting. Give me the injustice that's been done to you and I will give you my ways. And they are good and they're lovely. And I will show you my path and you can walk in safety and hope. That's my promise. So take hope. That's the good God.